welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. We have a special episode today and it won't be the last. So as part of our fellowship, the fellows will produce podcast episodes that will range from fun conversations to serious deep dives on environmental justice issues. And today, fellows Alexa White and Dr. Candace Hunter sat down with Dr. Beverly Wright. That's right, Dr. Beverly Wright, an environmental justice pioneer and the founder and executive director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. Dr. Wright talks about how to maintain environmental justice momentum as administrations change, environmental justice collaborations at the international level, and what she's learned about being in this fight for so many years. All right, I'm going to turn it over to the fellows now. Enjoy. Welcome to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast. I am Alexa White. And I am Candace Hunter. We are excited today to be talking to Dr. Beverly Wright. And so uh, Dr. Beverly Wright is uh, the executive director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice and uh, a pioneer in the environmental justice space. And so uh, we are really glad that she could take the time out of her day to, to come talk to us. And so um, Dr. Wright, uh, we'd like to know what is a current campaign or project at the Deep South Center that you're most excited about today? Well, we have several, and it's hard to pick. But I would say right now, um, the Justice 40 project that we're working on, which is really designed to make certain that the billions of dollars that are being set aside um, by the Biden administration to redress the harm that has existed for many generations in our communities from environmental pollution and the devastation of climate change, which we know are connected. So that project I'm extremely excited about, but I, I have to mention our second project, which is the, our Beyond Petrochemicals campaign that we are launching with funding from the Bloomberg um, Foundation. Our Justice 40 project is actually funded by the Bezos Foundation. So these are two very impactful, um, meaningful, and projects that are close to my heart. The one being certain that communities finally receive dollars that are necessary for them to become whole over the many, many years of discriminatory practices of siting facilities, toxic facilities in our community, the non-enforcement of regulations for controlling air toxins, the failure of the Clean Air Act completely um, because of the inability, because of the political side of that act determining um, emissions regulations, most of whom are not at the point that's really protective of communities. Those regulations are industrial standards. You know, so we end up with Cancer Alley and six. So that's an 85-mile stretch of land between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that was home to 136 petrochemical plants when I first started this work in 1992 but is now home to 156 petrochemical plants 
uh, all of which increase under our Republican governor, uh, Jindal, um, that is very friendly with the petrochemical industry. So we're now right now looking at 170 facilities in the pet, in the in Cancer Alley, with 29 new facilities about to come online uh, from all of these industries. And make no mistake, the pattern of citing um, dirty facilities in our community and in poor communities and in Louisiana is mostly African Americans has continued. So the the number of new facilities that are coming to these communities that are already suffering is 29, all in response to the oil and gas industry's attempts to increase their profits as we push for a move away from petrochemicals. And the state of Louisiana, for some reason, is just open to the petrochemical industry and all kinds of dirty waste. Uh, for money, and we end up in a commute in a living in a state that is rich in oil and gas, but the opposite is occurring in terms of wealth. We are a poor nation, so we know that there's a converse relationship between dirty industry and wealth, um, and you can actually see it in Louisiana, a very very rich state in terms of oil, but the, our communities are very poor. The state itself is a very poor state. So this Beyond Petrochemical campaign includes a number of pieces. The first is the research part, where we have actually mapped um, the TRI uh, pollution or emissions in the corridor by race uh, and by income. That this particular study that we're doing now is a comparison between 1990 uh, information that we did when we first started. It was our first project to do the spatial distribution between TRI emissions and, and race and income. We did that in 1994. And what we found was that there, it, there was, um, um, there was a, I'm trying to learn, say this just right because it, otherwise it's a long, but long sentence. But what we basically found was that there was a disproportionate, uh, no, so, disproportionate sighting in African American communities in the corridor that led to larger amounts of pollution or emissions in Black communities than white communities. And so, what we basically found that 80% of all Black people living in the chemical corridor live within three miles or five kilometers of a facility. If you can imagine, in Louisiana at that time was 32% African-American, um, but those of us living in the corridor made up 37%. So we, we were overrepresented in the corridor with the dirtiest of the facilities being cited where we were. We lived closest to them and, and were bearing the, the brunt of risk. So the risks were higher the project we, that's what we did in 1994, and that was the beginning of collecting data so that the federal government could, could decide what parameters should be used to define an environmental justice community, because nothing happens within the government without a definition. So we're complaining about being exposed, and we came up with the term environmental justice, and they couldn't do a thing because they didn't know what that was. And so one of the things to help them define that community was doing this particular exercise. And now you can see that these particular 
types of um, 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 what do I want to call this research is being done uh, continuously to define groups that need help. But now in the, now it's much more inclusive because it's not only including spatial distribution, but it's including a number of new tools that have come on board since the 90s. And that is social vulnerability, the CDC tools. And now you have this CGES tool that is extremely flawed, but Justice 40. And we have developed, through Dr. Bullard's uh, project, the HCGES tool. You'll hear more about that. So it's the Historically Black College and University CGES tool, where we include race in our calculations but the CGS2 does not. So here we are again, which makes no sense to me because we started out with race being the predictor, using it as a variable to determine who really, um, how do you define communities? We get all the way to 2023, and now all of a sudden you can't use race as a predictor of, uh, for a definition of an environmental justice community. You know, you mentioned the great work that your organization and others are doing with Justice 40. And one of our questions was, is how do you see Justice 40 moving beyond and evolving beyond this current administration? Well, I can tell you that the number one thing on my uh, prayer list is keep Biden alive. (laughs) If that. You know, keep Biden alive and healthy because I'm going to tell you, I don't hold up much hope for anything happening past this administration at this point. If we get a Republican administration, is they will stop everything. And one of the things that this, this um, administration is doing is trying to get as much money out as they can. I mean, they are pushing billions. They're trying to get the money out so that you know, if the other side wins, and I'm praying that they don't, they won't be able, they can't stop what's already out. So I'm saying just in the amount of money that's out, and if you see this train that they're on, the thriving communities, $50 million, you know, the tic-tac, $10 million, and at every turn, they're trying to get the monies out before 2024. So I say to everyone, Um, philanthropy has to step up. Nonprofits have to step up because this is an opportunity that I've never seen in my lifetime or anybody else. And we cannot be sure that it will be here when the Biden administration is gone. They're trying to institutionalize as much as they can, but you know, Congress, um, and you know, God knows if they get in, uh, they will stop everything and it'll, it will once again be all about rich folks, which is what it always is. And with a lot of poor people voting for them, which is a paradox. You know, it's almost like when you look at the Civil War and all the people who fought and died in that war, most of them didn't have a slave, would never have a slave and were poor. But they worked to keep slavery for rich people. And so that's that, that communications part that the Republicans have been very good at. Um, having people vote against their own self-interest. So we understand that. Um, trying to combat that has been very difficult. Absolutely. And that, that kind of feeds into a question that we had um, 
about just kind of changes in administration and protecting the success that you've made in EJ. And so can you just kind of share some key nuggets with us on how you've protected the success that you've made in environmental justice through the change in hands of administrations? One of the things that I have been um, really complaining about for the last 10 years is the fact that we have some environmental justice organizations that have begin that have been able to remain standing with no dollars, but the work that we've done has been um, really incredible and groundbreaking. Uh, organizations like um, EDF and Sierra Club began with endowments of a hundred million dollars, so they can withstand. They started with a hundred million dollar endowment. But nobody's talking about endowing environmental justice centers or, or, or organizations like mine that have been around in spite of not having any money. One of the things that's happened with the Biden administration is that philanthropy um, is now very interested in EJ organizations like mine. They have looked at the fact that for the last 20, 30 years, they have been putting large sums of money in organizations and the results have been the same, no results as it deals with health disparities and a number of other issues they've dealt with. Somebody found a little organization like mine, like Bullard, like Peggy Shepherds, and found that we were making a difference. We were having celebrations for wins and they decided that they wanted to know how it was done. So Robert Wood Johnson, for example, um, uh, we, and I'm sorry, we have a grant with, Robert Wood Johnson, where they are doing a deep dive into what we do and how we do it. Um, Community-based participatory research actually came out of the work that I was doing at the Deep South Center. I just didn't write an article on it. And so the next thing we know is that the community model that we put in place, which really has at its core, community-based participatory research, citizen science, all of those things, but respect for communities and respect for their knowledge, was, which was the beginning of the work that we've done, uh, that's still a part of the work that I don't, I don't think is in, ingrained as much as it should be even in those other concepts. But somebody discovered us. And what came out of that was more, um, not, more philanthropic organizations having deep conversations with us about what we do and how we do it, and then funding our work. So the Biden administration um, doing things like placing EJ people on the WeJack, in other words, high profile, um, high profile boards, and we'll call them FACAs, which is what they're called in the federal government, for little old me and other EJ people has also um, lifted our profile and, and made us financially a lot more stable than what we've, we've ever been with talks about um, endowments at this point. But the grants that have come to us through the Biden administration, competitively, by the way, has in fact infused our um, organizations with money in such a way that we can finally staff up to get work done, we have actually have money to hire uh, people, um, and I think it's given um, it's um, 
sort of change the paradigm on, you know, what qualifies you as a credible source for information or knowledge and work? We want to uh, to change gears just a little bit um, into thinking about the international space. So um, uh, I was with you uh, in Egypt when we created, uh, well, we you hosted the, the first uh, climate justice pavilion at COP. And so we invited a lot of people from the African diaspora. And um, I wanted to ask you, where do you see the environmental justice movement going internationally? Are there any environmental justice international movements that you're really interested in right now or that are related to the work that you're doing now? Yes. So a lot of people don't know this, but that the beginning of my in the beginning of my environmental justice work in the U.S., uh, we established a relationship with um, the first environmental justice network in South Africa. Um, we actually went to that uh, particular cop and we bought computers and everything to set up an office for our work while we were there, and we left them with all of that so that they could continue their work. So. We've had that uh, sort of connection early on, but it takes a lot of resources to continue an international relationship and the Environmental Justice Network didn't have much money, but we did continue relationships. And I would say that our strongest relationships have been through South Africa and Brazil. So we had the connections in Brazil and that has continued through other kinds of just events happening with the community in Brazil, our articles being published in Spanish um, by the organizations on the ground there, Dr. Bullard and mine. But what's really excited about now is that the Climate Justice Pavilion, and I've been going to COPS for, I've gone to at least 14. And at every COP, we connected with PAJA, that's a Pan-African Nations, you know, organization at COP. Um, but we've never really been able to get a project moving. It was always a matter of resources. And just recently, the Environmental Protection Agency um, called us and asked to help them to sponsor a connect between Africa and the U.S. It's something that the administrator would like to see happen. And here's something really exciting for you that I didn't know. Idris Elba parents are from uh, Sierra Leone and mm, I forgot, Ghana or Kenya. So he has his African parents and he's really interested in the environment. So the administrator uh, took a trip with Idris Elba to those two African countries And what has come out of that is a relationship between our HBCU climate climate change consortium, where we have faculty mentors from HBCUs. We had like 32 HBCUs. We're now adding four uh, faculty mentors from Africa. And they are joining our uh, organization, our meetings, so that They can be a part of our upcoming climate change conference in October. And four, um, I think it's four, African students will be coming to our climate change conference with them and presenting. 
So I find that our relationship with Africa is budding more on the side of connecting young people and universities and those types of resources together rather than at the community-based organization level. But we see the connection through the universities because all of these universities are working with communities on the ground on these issues. We see this as a way for us to once again begin engaging community-based organizations in Africa. And it seems like it's um, Kenya, um, Ghana, uh, Sierra Leone and um, Nigeria. These are the places that we're making the connect. But Pasha, the South Af, the um, the um, Pan African uh, Environmental Justice Organization, um, holds a summer camp on climate change that includes seven hundred African students from all across the continent. Uh, EDF, by the way, has been working with us and they plan to sponsor um, three um, three HBCU students to go to the conference in Africa this summer. They'll pay for three students and a chaperone. It's so exciting to hear that all this money is coming in. I remember um, there was, yes, I remember everything when we were in Paris at COP. <laughs> And so it's it's nice to hear that everything is kind of coming to coming to a head. And so um, in in light in light of that, um, one of our one of our last questions is so in creating and maintaining uh, the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, are there any mistakes or things that you think other people could learn from that are coming after you that you really wish maybe that you have done or you see mistakes that other people are doing that uh, our listeners could could really learn from? Yeah, well, um, you have to understand when you do this kind of work, you make a lot of enemies. Um, And you make the big enemies, like with the petrochemical industry. My name was on the hit list for the Chemical Manufacturers uh, Union when I first started doing my work. Um, I can remember walking into rooms and I'd hear people groaning because they knew I was going to that mic just to bless them out over what was happening to my people. Um, But I learned, and one mistake is when you try to respond to all the negative stuff and so much of it comes after you and you feel like I got to write this letter, I have to respond. And at some point I'm like, you know what? All this time that I'm taking to respond to evil and negative is taking time from the good work. So our motto has become, keep your eyes on the prize, ignore everything that you are able to ignore. Just pretend like it doesn't exist. And what I found is that it goes away because it's, it's hot air, it's jealousy, it's the strategy of the petrochemical industry. They literally sent the federal government after me while I was at Xavier to be audited, trying to find that that I had misappropriated funds in some way. They spent eight months at Xavier and didn't find one that one penny had been misused. Wow. So they came after us hard in the beginning. 
So the other thing is you need to make sure you play by the rules. Don't take shortcuts, whatever it is with the money, use it the way it's supposed to be used. So you don't get in trouble because they will be looking at you. Um, they sent newspaper um, uh, journalists on um trips with us through Cancer Alley and everything, trying to find something negative to say. And they wrote a lot of negative things about us, but I just never responded. And so now when I look back, all of those people, I don't know where they are, but we're still standing. So that's what you have to remember. You know, the righteous fight in the end will win. And um, don't be swayed by all of the noise. And, you know, we're talking about working with what I call despised minorities and what it, what it means to be a despised minority. That's people of color in general, Latinos, Native Americans, Asian Pacific Islands, black people. Then you got the hate, the breakdown of the Haitians and the Africans who see themselves as Nigerian and Igbo and all of that. When you put all of us in a room with all that has happened to us to make us really sick and crazy you can get some really nasty stuff that comes out of that. And so trying to keep your head on in spite of all of the arrows that are coming from you, from the industry, you know, uh, from supposed friends, from other ethnic groups, we all go through it. You have to learn to shut out the noise. And if you can do that and just stay focused on what your mission is, and always move forward around that goal, you'll be all right. If not, you'll be like so many hundreds and thousands of organizations who have fallen to the wayside. They fall into the trap that's really put there to tear you down. You know, the division and all of that. That's to make certain that you don't move forward. Like what's happening with our politics today. That's what that's all about. The hatred, the, you know, you're taking, give us, what is it? Uh, make America great again, you know, all of that. That's just divisive stuff meant to divide and conquer. And I'm afraid it's winning in our country. I uh, Maybe not because the liberals won in Wisconsin last night. So it's a close call, but if we all go out to vote, we can beat them, you know, but, but that this is, these are all strings that are being pulled uh, for our demise. And so, and and also, I would say that um, find a team that you can trust, and a, a small team, inner circle team that you can trust, and um, that you can be a support to one another. And then it works. I think I had no idea I would be here when I started this organization in 1992, and I can tell you. In 2017, uh, when I left Dillard University and went out on my own, I had no idea that I would flourish, you know, because after that. I thought it was going to really be hard. It turned out to be very easy. And I think it's timing is everything. The time that I left, the George Floyd murder, the Biden administration, you know, the Justice 40, all of that just came together kind of at the same time. And um, it's helped to propel us to where we are. You know, when I looked around and saw, uh, received something in the mail to respond to an invitation to apply for a grant that would be a million dollars a year for general support. 
but there was a limit on how much money you could have, uh, your your budget, your yearly budget. And I was over that. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, like I actually make too much money or bring too much money in to apply for a million dollars. Times have changed, you know, absolutely have changed. And I've been able to pay for hospitalization for all of my staff, you know, retirement plans and all of that kind of stuff. So we're not a second rate organization anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the last the last question uh, we wanted to ask is, are there any up and coming groups that you want people to pay attention to or people that you think are kind of newer but doing really good work that uh, you, could, you could talk about? Well, I think um, the National Black Environmental Justice Network that is just being reorganized is a group that, and I, I saw where we were named one of the top five organizations to look out for. And I only wish Damu Smith were alive. You know, he was our hero who started NBEJN and we couldn't rub two nickels together back then. It was hard to get money. The Lutheran Church and the, the Methodist women organization supported NBEJN back then, if you can believe it. Methodist women, I didn't know they had all that money, but they do. And they supported us. And UCC, it was all churches. That's how we kind of survived back then. And if he were alive to see, you know, that NBEJN actually gets grants enough to keep us afloat in a good way, I would say NBEJN in particular. I don't really know... um, Many of the new and upcoming groups, because I've been too busy to really know who they are. But I do know that, um, I don't want to call out the wrong names, but I did meet a few uh, recently. But I think they they already have quite a bit of money at this retreat where I was attending. So Solutions Project, I think that's one. The Solutions Project. Seems to be, but I think they're pretty stable. But they, I, I met... Uh, people involved in that and thought they were really doing really good work. Fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) This has been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for all of your time and energy that you put into the answers. They were extremely thorough and very profound. So um, thank you so much for participating in the Agents of Change podcast. I want to say this one thing. I want to say that I am so very proud of you because I met you while you were still at Howard and as a professor, we I, we just get so excited, you know, when we see that our students have gone on to do great stuff, you know, and that you're not um, superficial, money-chasing kind of student, which is what we were fighting against for a lot of years, just to <laughs> money. And so it just makes us so proud to see you still doing the work and, and still inspired and excited, uh, you know, about that. And to my uh, Spelman sister, where all my money went for six years, because both of my daughters went there. I'm proud of you as well. Um, and, and thank you both for what you're doing right now, even if it's connected to your school. I don't know your grade. I don't know what it's connected to. But this is wonderful. And thank you. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed their conversation with Dr. Wright. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. 
You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend. This podcast was written, recorded, and produced by Candace Hunter and Alexa White, edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak to fellow Dr. Lizbeth Iglesias-Rios, a research investigator at the University of Michigan. Have a great week, folks.